Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And fresh on the heels of New York Fashion Week, we are doing something I'm, I'm kind of surprised we haven't done before on the podcast, which is looking at fashion. Yeah, fashion and fashion modeling. So many loaded issues to talk about. So it's so perfect for Sminty. It really is. And here is the thing I was not expecting when I set out to research a history of fashion modeling. Just wanting to know how this whole catwalk thing began when women started being paid to be clothes hangers, essentially. And it was surprisingly hard to find. Of course, there are all sorts of galleries and listicles on the internet of of the, the most famous or hottest supermodels, but what about the era long before supermodels when women began modeling? You, It took some digging. It did take some digging, and actually pre-era of women modeling, it was all about men modeling. And before men modeling, it was doll modeling. <laughs> yeah, all of the digging, folks, absolutely worth it. And I first want to call out uh, the source for a lot of this this early, early history of fashion modeling, which is coming from fashion historian Caroline Evans in her paper, The Ontology of the Fashion Model, which we'll have a link to on our website because the full text is online and you can access it. And I highly recommend you read it because it is fascinating. So why don't we start off with Looking at the very word model, because models did not begin as models. That's right. And so the very word model is derived from the Latin modellus, but it didn't mean fashion model or even mathematical model until the 20th century. The first fashion models were actually called Demoiselles de Magasin. Yeah. And so from the 1870s to around 1929, they were first called mannequins, which was derived from the Dutch word referring to an articulated doll used by artists. And this use of mannequins to describe these earliest fashion models was coined by a journalist in 1870. But writers used a masculine gender for the word, separating the idea from the person. And it would have earlier, to call someone a mannequin, would have earlier been considered a super pejorative word, suggesting somebody who's empty-headed, fashionable, but contemptible. And its negative connotations were maintained when it was becoming used for women who were modeling clothes. Definitely evoked scorn. In the 1870s, Evans writes that it comes to suggest the theme of femininity as a kind of mechanical performance. Yeah, that and that refers to another book that she wrote all about this called The Mechanical Smile, all about fashion modeling. And she talks about how the first fashion shows were thus called mannequin parades. Now, sometimes they were referred to as living models, but it wasn't until really the mid-20th century that models became models, referred to as models. And initially, the model, though, referred to the canvas toile, which was a first-stage dress rather than the person wearing the dress. So, as you can see, there's all sorts of objectification constantly going on. If you think about us, it's almost synecdoche, being, you know, the, the person being referred to for the dress. And the fact that <laughs> if we think of mannequins today... You know, well, aside from Kim Cattrall in the movie Mannequin. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Usually. 
usually inanimate objects, but that's what they were paid to be, inanimate objects. Right. So let's get let's get creepy. Let's get real creepy. Yeah. Here. We, we got to talk about the original, the, the OG model, which is a doll. These were the precursors, the predecessors to fashion models. And basically, 18th century French dressmakers sent dolls that looked like the person, basically, dressed in fancy clothes around Europe, largely because, surprise, surprise, fashionable women themselves really couldn't travel freely. Which reflects so much of the stuff that we talked about in terms of women and travel in our summer series on women and travel <laughs> last <laughs> summer. And some couture houses, though, for that reason, would make these doll body doubles of clients to replicate her proportions. In other words, making a custom mannequin for a woman that they could then build off of. Sometimes designers would make those house calls, but if you didn't live, say, in downtown Paris, if you weren't closely accessible to a designer, then yeah, you would get a doll in the mail. Creepy delivery. Hello. Hello. And hello also to the men who were the first live breathing human models in Paris. Yeah, because men were freer to parade around public spaces, so naturally they were the first walking clothes advertisements. And this really started in the 1820s and really only lasted about 20 years when Parisian tailors would hire handsome dudes <laughs> called mannequins, they really put the man in mannequin, oh. to wear their fancy clothes, and then they would just go out to hip spots in Paris. They would go to the races and be like, hello, dandies, do you like how I'm dressed? I don't know why I'm not speaking with a French accent. <laughs> and no one can understand me because I'm also speaking English. Uh, well, the mannequins were largely looked down upon as posers, basically. They were wearing nice clothes, sure, but they had to give them back at the end of the day. And they were described as a man whose profession was to rent out his body. He had to be elegant enough to appeal to dandies. Uh, but poor enough to require a, a wage every day. Yeah, and keep that whole renting your body out thing mm-hmm. in mind, because that's going to come up a lot in the early perceptions and lasting perceptions, really, of female models in particular. Uh, but there was one great example that Evans mentions in the ontology of the fashion model, which is from an 1826 vaudeville performance that features a mannequin named Hector. And I'm talking again like a fashion model mannequin. He was also an artist model. But this guy named Hector, who arrives on the stage singing Brilliant model, faithful mirror, I sparkle with light and fire. I wander everywhere, setting the vogue for the new looks in the (laughs) catalogue. I loved it so much. Little Hector just tap dancing in his in his trousers, in his velveteen trousers. So sharp. Sparkling with light and fire. Um, (laughs) I'm not going to be able to recover from that all day. Basically. All right. Well, if we if we move past Hector the vaudevillian uh, and we get into the 1850s and 60s, we see couturier Charles Worth, who's credited with being the first to use actual live, breathing, living with blood in their bodies, female fashion models. And he kept it in the family because his wife, Marie Vernet, who was a, a sales clerk, she became essentially the chief mannequin, CMO, chief mannequin officer, and was quite possibly the West's very first 
fashion model, and she was she was pretty dedicated to her craft. This woman worked twelve hour days in general, but also through both of her pregnancies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was not easy to be a mannequin back then. And uh, Evans talks about how this was perhaps feminizing the advertising gimmick first established by those tailors and their male mannequins, um, because they also would send well-dressed women out to the races and other hot spots as well. And Charles Worth, though, also instituted the idea of a pre-designed collection rather than dresses made for one woman. And so he would use living mannequins to show customers the dresses. Yeah. And so then when we get into the 1870s to 80s, instead of those designers paying house calls, essentially, the aristocratic women begin visiting them. And that's when we see fashion modeling becoming more widespread because you had those living models lounging about showing off their wares. And so by the 1890s, then, it was common for wealthy women to just spend their afternoons watching the mannequins at top couturiers of the time, like Charles Worth. And so that's when we have this link between modeling and the association with high-end dressmakers, wealthy clientele, the status symbol kind of thing. Although, of course, there was a vast socioeconomic gap between the mannequin and the client. Yeah, and so by the end of the 19th century, the profession had been thoroughly feminized. Most models were women, Although, of course, at this point, they still weren't called models. They were still called mannequins because models were associated with the women at this point who posed for artists. Another type of woman who basically showed off her body for money. Yeah. And there was just one image um, that comes to mind that I saw in the research, which was all these well-dressed, beautifully dressed mannequins who were walking in a, in a very, you know, posed kind of way, but walking about in a back lawn somewhere of a, of a lovely estate. And then you have the wealthy women just sitting around watching them, seeing how the, seeing how the clothes moved. Cause that was another important facet to this was this newfound interest in actually seeing the clothes in motion. That was part of the appeal of seeing it on a person who could move around rather than your personalized doll. Mm, so creepy. Um, but the working conditions for models at the time weren't exactly glamorous, as you might imagine, because imagine standing posed for a portrait, but for hours, because you'd essentially have to stand passively while the dressmaker would pull and prod and poke at you, creating his dress on you, and while wealthy aristocratic women would come in and pull and poke and prod at you looking at the dress. And all this would be happening while wearing a neck-to-ankle black satin maillot or foro underneath to preserve modesty and also to protect the gown from getting dirty. And uh, Evans cites another source talking about how, quote, this denial of the body is also a way of the mannequin long despised, living off her body like a prostitute. But it's interesting to look at culture at large at the time, because in literature and psychology, we also get a lot of fear about doppelgangers, automatons, and the line between animate 
and inanimate, live, and dead. Yeah, there was a lot of anxiety um, surrounding even these mannequins. And Walter Benjamin, in particular, had a fascination with fashion at the time. Uh, he described fashionable women as mimicking the mannequin who enter history as dead objects. Tell us how you really feel, Walter. Yeah, and, and fashion reporters, and just, I mean, reporters in general at the time, reported these mannequins, these models, as being robotic and doll-like well into the 20th century. And we see the same thing reflected on catwalks today. I mean, a lot of times, depending on the look of the designer, models don't necessarily look all that human. Right, but if we go back to those points that we hit earlier about, you know, showing off your body for money, things like that... These working class women who ended up being these fashion models were widely regarded as living objects, so they were literally objectified. But they were also stigmatized as being sexually promiscuous, whether you were modeling fashion or modeling nude for an artist. Because you're just, you're this passive body who is making a living wage, or maybe not a living wage, by using your body. Yeah, I mean, you're selling your body. And there was also, I mean, it, w- it was fairly common for these women to, I mean, because they were, they had to be attractive, you know, they were slim and attractive. They were models. And it was common even back then for them to end up marrying wealthy men. And that was the way that they entered society, which of course was looked down upon by wealthy women who were like, oh, you're nothing more than a mannequin. <laughs> Kim Cattrall, get out of here. Um, and then we see in the early 20th century, the models who are walking in the very first fashion shows having to master a sliding, undulating walk in order to move in the tight, sheath-like dresses that designers were making that also emphasized their legs in new ways. It's this desire to preview the clothing in motion. Yeah, because they not only had to see how the clothes looked, but also had to learn how to even wear the clothes, to move around in the clothes. Um, there was something, uh, actually, this was a little bit before those sheath-like dresses, but in the late 19th century, there was this sort of a fashion fad called the Grecian Bend, which uh, I wrote about for a blog post on stuffmomnevertoldyou.com, which essentially was uh, because of the combination of corsets and bustles and high heels, the only way to move around was to be bent over. You were literally weighted over by this. And so you have all of these illustrations of high fashion women at the time tottering around, bent over as if they're looking for lost contacts on the sidewalk. So we've always been slaves to fashion. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, Except maybe in the loincloth days. One class seem pretty low key. I don't know, Kristen. That's really oppressive. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, or just breezy. It's real breezy. <laughs> um, but these high end customers were resistant, though, to the rise of ready to wear, as they could still pay for custom clothing. So keep that in mind too, as we see this sort of economic stratification of fashion starting to emerge as modeling then arrives in the 20th century. 
in America, and we're shifting sources too to another influential paper, Fashioning Models, Image, Text, and Industry. So then we see in the World War One era more Parisian designers coming stateside. You have in 1908 Lady Duff Gordon opening her first U.S. house in Manhattan called Lucille, and she's introducing couturier modeling. She brought six living mannequins with her to display her work and gave them exotic-sounding names similar to, you know, how women's names are exoticized in brothels or strip clubs. Yeah, there again, there are so many parallels constantly to modeling and prostitution. And no, we're not equating the two, but at the time, I mean, it's just it's just there. Mm-hmm. Um so in the 1920s though, Duff Gordon's fashion house becomes the first to have celebrity models when some of them become hired for the Ziegfeld Follies. So you have Gamella and other of their Madonna-esque fashion models showing up on these early catwalks in 1915 in fact there was a transparent catwalk built for a Ziegfeld show. Mm. Well, so you have popular model and Ziegfeld performer Dolores, which I love that that's like a, a model name because I just pictured Dolores like this, a little old lady with glasses. But anyway, Dolores became known essentially as the goddess of clothes. She modeled in Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and Town and Country, a subscription for which my mother signed me up uh, unprompted. And I love to flip through it and just laugh, laugh at how I can't afford anything in that magazine. You have a Town and Country subscription? Yeah, do you want it? No, I just love learning these things about you. <laughs> it's all Sally, man. She she signed me up for that. She also signed me up for the following magazine. Uh, in 1918, Vanity Fair, which I never have time to get through, God help me, reported that no other woman, speaking of Dolores, had been more widely posed or photographed. Yeah, so we start to have the first supermodel, sort of. I mean, that, that's about as super as you could get. But in 1923, after we have Dolores and her kind showing up in Ziegfeld shows, getting a lot of attention, there's an out-of-work actor named John Robert Powers who is thinking about what to do with other underemployed or unemployed theater folk. And his wife makes an excellent suggestion to join photographers and create the first modeling agency in the United States. And John Robert Powers really hits the jackpot with this idea, thanks to the transition also happening at the time in the advertising industry, where you see a shift beginning toward photography. Yeah, but you've also got a demand going on from the ad industry for sanitized female sexuality to sell goods. This is when we see the development of this quest for the natural girl looking clean and like an upstanding citizen, somebody that you'd want to emulate with the products. But she's still she's still attractive. And this is still something that we think of in modeling today, where it's looking for someone who has the look. What is the look? And mm-hmm. at the time, it was sanitized female sexuality. Because, yeah, I mean, female sexuality is terrifying. Well, yeah, and unless it's, if it's unsanitized female sexuality. Right. It's sanitized. 
No problem. We're good to go. I'm just thinking of like hand sanitizer. <laughs> uh, so, All the burning. <laughs> but a year later, after uh, John Robert Power starts up this first modeling agency in the U.S., in 1924, Jean Pateau hires white American women to sell his clothes so that customers could more easily identify with them. And in the process of doing this, essentially being like, models, they're just like you. Uh-huh. It elevates the status of modeling, making it more of a socially accepted profession. Interesting. So, so no longer are they primarily perceived as prostitutes. There's a little bit of respectability about it now. Oh, so more of something that you'd want to aspire to. Suddenly, the aristocratic women buying the fancy clothes want to be like the slim, beautiful ladies wearing them, as opposed to looking down on them for being like prostitutes. Well, and we also have to keep in mind the rise of mass media and Mm -hmm. photography at the time. We're seeing these photos of people like never before as well. And this is also coinciding with the rise of the earliest celebrity culture Mm -hmm. and Hollywood developing. So a lot of forces combining to create this new beauty culture. So during World War II, it's interesting to talk about the images that develop, the models that are used, the image that designers want to present. Balenciaga, for instance, showed his clothes on shorter, stockier women to reflect his real-life clientele. And during World War II, this look develops among models uh, that pursues a, a more ordinary image, more cheerful to offset all of the gloom around the austerity during the war. Yeah, so the war doesn't, I mean, it, it might take a little bit of attention away from modeling, but it's still absolutely developing and growing. And so in 1947, Dior's new look comes along, though, and it was highly controversial at the time because this is when we really see fashion moving away from the practical, and it was not great timing for it because even though the war might have been over, there was still a lot of austerity, ripple effects of austerity, particularly in Europe at the time. And during one of Dior's shows at this time, a model was physically attacked by outraged and impoverished onlookers who were saying, how could you even suggest that we would wear these clothes in a time like this? But... The new look nonetheless created a whole new look for models. They were sophisticated. They had haughty eyebrows <laughs> and groomed hair. And Caroline, I have a new eyebrow aspiration and it is for haughty eyebrows. <laughs> I like that the eyebrows themselves are haughty. They got a real tood. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the top models in New York ended up adopting the look themselves. And in 1954, Coco Chanel's total look was modeled on young aristocrats. She looked out to the people for her inspiration. To the wealthy people. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, and it was kind of a big deal because she wasn't necessarily tapping, say, those 12 top models in New York with the haughty eyebrows, but tapping actual real life aristocrats. Yeah, and so in the late 50s, Dior continues to push the envelope by hiring dark, petite, and inexperienced model Victoire to coincide with the rise of this new class of clients for the ready-to-wear industry. And fashion modeling thus took on a new element of social class. And a lot of his pre-existing clients considered the hiring of Victoire to be an insult. Her left bank look, how dare he? I wonder how haughty her eyebrows were. I, I don't know. She had real 
really just like down to earth eyebrows yeah. and they're like, nope, not going to do Victoire. <laughs> but it was with this rise of ready to wear and technological developments of fashion photography that really leads us into today's modeling industry because we have things like ready to wear relying on standardized sizing and so then you get that idealized model look because the models had to be thin enough to fit these specific standardized sample sizes and in the 1960s too when it comes to fashion photography you have its availability for the first time due to technology in newsprint and magazines bringing high fashion looks to the masses. It's everywhere. Fashion is everywhere. And, and these, and these high end models can be photographed and become recognizable faces mm-hmm. in all of the, in town and country, for instance, <laughs> uh, for the first oh, time. I, I must get those riding boots. Yes. Um, but yeah, so this is when we see like the development of cult of personality around models. They become more important for creating looks for their designers campaigns than ever before. And this really sets the stage for, or, or the catwalk, for high paid supermodels that we see starting around the 80s. You've got Jean Shrimpton, she was the first of the quote-unquote natural models required to market ready-to-wear. And she talks about how, like, yeah, you know, I just looked pretty ordinary. And that really sold. I, of course, she's beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Thinking of Jean Shrimpton. Jean Shrimpton is anything but ordinary. I have a hair crush on her. <laughs> I know. All day long. I know. Well, but, yeah, she talks about how, like, I didn't have any sort of essentially high-fashion look. I had a more accessible middle America look. And that is what Sold, And then you have 1966, Twiggy becomes the first youthful superstar model. And during this era, though, meanwhile, in the 1960s, black models were used from time to time, but they were usually featured as something special, as something exotic, to borrow a term from a previous episode. And something that we still see so often today, which Mm -hmm. we'll get into more details in just a few minutes. Then in the 1970s, we have Eileen Ford, famous from Ford Models, Scouting Lauren Hutton's, quote, humane face. And Lauren Hutton's humane face, which I just love that description. (laughs) What is a humane face? All right, Lauren Hutton. Beautiful Lauren Hutton. In 1973, she becomes the highest paid model in history or herstory, (laughs) earning $200,000 for 20 days work. So it's a big deal. I mean, modeling, obviously, is becoming more and more of this high pay kind of thing. Yeah, for some people. For some people. Some people like, three years later in 1976, Margot Hemingway, and she topped that previous record with a $1 million contract for new new perfume. So you could really smell like a million bucks. And then in the late 70s and early 80s, we have the arrival of the supermodel. And this is really reflecting globalization, economic boom times, and just the the general fun times of the era. Because you have this era of the model as a celebrated commodity. If you want to sell something and you have $20,000 that you can spend in one day, you hire a supermodel because her globalized beauty ideal is guaranteed to get people's attention and show that you, fledgling brand, are with it. That's right. And so in the context of the time,
time in the late 70s. That's when we first get twice yearly fashion shows that are happening in Milan. And this is where models start earning big bucks. And this really changed fashion and modeling, make it, making it way more accessible through media. People are, people are shooting, photographers are shooting these twice yearly fashion shows. Oh, but can we also quickly mention that Milan Ugh. in the late 70s and early 80s and probably still today for models was also just a hotbed of predatory behavior by fashion photographers, by would-be agents, by wealthy men with lots of cocaine. And there was, I mean, there was a lot of seedy behavior going on then and now in terms of models constantly being taken advantage of and presented with, again, mountains of cocaine yeah. and other drugs and alcohol and um, getting into the industry that way. Yeah, I'm making a face, and this is the same face that I was making the entire time I was reading the article that talked about the history of this whole, n- not just fashion and modeling in general, but specifically the high fashion modeling that was happening around fashion weeks, and specifically Milan. It's all so freaking creepy. There's a lot of cocaine. There's just a lot of cocaine. That's right. Um, but if we talk more about the supermodels specifically, the late 80s recession actually fueled super models becoming these famous consumption objects, making them into designer and brand status symbols. Basically, if you could afford or appear to afford a face like Christy Turlington's or Cindy Crawford's, Caroline Irvin's. That's right. Me at five foot two. For your campaign, it would make you appear to be hipper, hotter, more of a, a object of desire in terms of your fashion and what you're selling. Well, and at the same time, though, the fact that these specific faces were known around the world for their sex appeal. This is something termed visual neocolonialism that's taking place. It's this globalization of these very specific kinds of beauty standards. And really, too, with the supermodel era, we have models eroticized more than ever before. And along with that, the whole, I mean, there was some truth to it, but also some mythology of the supermodel making, like, who was it who wasn't going to get out of bed for less than... Linda Evangelista. Yeah. How much would you get out of bed for? I don't know. For lots of ducats. And you have to have a, you have to have like the Scrooge McDuck swimming pool of gold coins for <laughs> Evangelista to get out of bed. And so it also, it, it interestingly flips this original script of models as these uh, almost a step away from prostitutes who could only marry into wealth and society to supermodels as self-empowered, hotly pursued sex symbols. Mm. But even with the supermodels, even with this visual neocolonialism, which if the colonialism doesn't tip you off, it's not necessarily a good thing. Even with all of these factors, it doesn't mean that for everybody else, everyone who is not an elite supermodel, that working conditions got any better. Yeah, you're basically, your trade is the way that you look, the way that your body appears. And for instance, the typical measurements of models today are sort of out of reach for a lot of the population. For women, 
Uh, the typical measurements are being at least five foot nine with a 34 inch bust, a 24 inch waist and 34 inch. That's so hips. funny. That's that is me like to a T. Perfect. All right. <laughs> totally we're kidding. We're quitting podcasting. I'm going to be your agent. All we're right. Gonna be the model. It's going to be go. great. Um, for men, standard sizing is six to six foot three with a 32 inch waist and a 39 to 40 inch chest. All right. So, I mean, so, yeah, so you have to fit this very specific body type, but you can't just have the measurements. That won't cut it. You have to have the personality, the reputation, the -the on-the-job performance, the look, that elusive look, a humane face, perhaps, like Lauren Hutton. And Michael Gross was the one who wrote about the gross, <laughs> sorry, uh, stuff going on in the modeling industry, like at fashion shows, uh, in his book Model, The Ugly Business of Beautiful Women. And he talks about this whole practice of agents trying to lure models to another agency. And it's disgusting because it essentially makes them sound like just, I mean, they're just livestock being sold back and forth, which is what he says. He says that they're sold for bounties and it is a thriving trade. Oh, yeah. There was a documentary. I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but it was uh, called Girl Model tracking these Eastern European girls. I mean, because a lot of times you're scouted when you're 14 years old and it follows a couple of these Eastern European girls in their quest for super modeldom. And one of them, for instance, is sent to a job in Japan. But she the the agency isn't just sending her there. She actually comes back from the shoot in debt because mm-hmm. the agency was picking up the tab until she could pay them back. It's a it's it's a, a, a skeezy business a lot of the times. Yeah, and that's described as essentially these models becoming like indentured servants to their agencies. And this is stuff that Sarah Ziff, a former model herself, is trying to target through the Model Alliance. She says that there's not enough protection for these young girls who are being asked to lose weight, to pose nude unexpectedly sometimes, and to work all hours. Yeah, and this has to do with flimsy child labor laws. I mean, they're kind of all over the place. There's been a lot of focus in particular on child labor laws in New York City just because of fashion weeks there. Um, and there are things in place in terms of according to New York law, if you are a model under 18, you have to have, say, um, time designated for schoolwork and you can only work X amount of hours. But during fashion week, all of that goes out the window mm-hmm. and sometimes beyond fashion week, because if you are so hotly pursuing this industry, you're going to do things that probably do violate these child labor laws. Yeah, but then we also see how using these underage models affects the industry, the look, and older models and women in general. Because the thing is, when you're using a girl who's 14 years old, she's pretty small. She hasn't hit puberty yet. She doesn't have hips, boobs, a waist. And this is coming from the same Nation article that talked about the Model Alliance. But basically, a model used to weigh 8% less than the average woman, and now it's 23% less. And this ends up putting a lot of pressure on these young girls not to grow up. They're being told, well, you've got to lose weight. And it's like, how do I lose weight when I'm just getting boobs? And it also puts a lot of pressure on the older models to starve themselves and try to attain this look of young girls. Yeah, I mean, you can't, it's almost, it seems to have a shorter lifespan a lot of times than that of a professional athlete. Mm -hmm. And 
I want this statistic to ring clear to any girl listening who is interested in model, who wants to grow up to become a model, any parent who has a daughter who really wants to grow up to be a model. The average income for a model these days is $32,000 with zero benefits. And a lot of times what you get paid for or what, what you get paid on a shoot is clothes. You just get to keep your clothes. You're like, you're like one of the mannequins in the 1820s at the Parisian horse races, except you actually get to keep the clothes at the end of the day. And a lot of times reflecting how freelance work in general mm-hmm. has influenced our overall economy, contract work has largely replaced full time gigs post recession. So, Oh, man. And I know some of these girls who desperately want to be models because they've been elevated to these positions of the, you know, ultimate beauty symbols. And it's I mean, it's 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 a dead end. A lot of times it is a dead end. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Almost impossible. You'd have better chances of winning the lottery than becoming a Heidi Klum, who not only was a successful model, but parlayed that career into TV shows, clothing lines, all sorts of amazing stuff. Married Seal. There you go. You'd have to, yeah, the chances of marrying Seal. I mean, what are those? What are those chances? <laughs> but even, even regardless of the low pay, you still have issues of consent when it comes to modeling. 86% of fashion models have been asked to pose nude without prior notice, either contractually or informally. And 27% of them felt pressured to comply in order to keep their jobs. Hence, 14-year-old Brooke Shields posing naked in a bathtub and then having to go through that entire legal fight with that fashion photographer to try to get those photographs back, which, I mean, and that was before the -hmm. Internet. Yeah. I mean, it would be impossible now. Yeah. And former model Patricia Soleil Beltran wrote about this in a 2004 paper about models feeling alienated from their own look, their own image, their own body. She says that... Being a successful model means obtaining the official degree certificate in beauty, certifying normative compliance and social acceptability. These girls and women are expected to project this incredible self-confidence that makes us, as the normies, want to buy those clothes, want to aspire to look like them and be like them. But they're being paid like actresses to look that way. And so... Really, when you dig deeper, you find these girls who are literally and figuratively starving for help, and they're relying on managers and agents. They're insecure, desperately insecure about their physique and maintaining it, and by that point, they've wrecked their own health to achieve it. And we also need to talk about diversity, because modern modeling has promoted a nearly exclusive ideal of white, slim, cisgender, heterosexual beauty ideals. Mm -hmm. And this is important because model culture does reflect our collective feelings toward things like class, nationality, race, social mobility, gender proficiency, power, wealth. I mean, it's an aspirational look that we're going for. And the aspiration has, in many ways still is, very limited Yeah. And so when you get women of color modeling, they're often portrayed as an exotic or ethnic accessory or they're a musician or an athlete or a celebrity or they're just viewed as an object of pity. And even during the supermodel heyday, Naomi Campbell was not getting as many contracts, even still, as her white supermodel counterparts. 
And progress has been so slow and remain problematic in terms of um, women of color in a modeling context. So, but quickly though, just to show how short of a timeline we're even working with mm-hmm. for black women and women of color to even have any space in the modeling industry, it wasn't until the mid 1960s that Daniele Luna becomes the first black supermodel. And chances are you probably haven't even heard of her. I mean, her she was unfamiliar to me at the time. And the New York Magazine article about her initially highlighted that of like, hey, you probably don't know this. I mean, partially because, uh, possibly because she died of a drug overdose at 33. Yeah, she became, in 1966, British Vogue's first black cover model. And this is during a time when the magazine world really wasn't ready for photographing beautiful black women, according to that article. And a fellow model was quoted as saying, and this is important, especially in light of the episode we did on the exoticization of women of color, but she said that no one looked like her. She was really like an extraordinary Species. Yeah, and Luna preferred to live in Europe with her husband and their daughter. And she also didn't like to claim she was black. She was far likelier to call herself mulatta or mixed. Yeah, and eight years later, in 1974, Beverly Johnson, who is more of a household name, became the first black model on the cover of American Vogue. Eight years, though, between Daniele and Beverly. And... This had to do with the fact that black models didn't become more commonly seen until the 70s. This this was partially fueled by the Black is Beautiful movement, um, but it was also cued, apparently, by this 1973 event called the Battle of Versailles, which was a fashion face-off between American and French designers, and Americans were praised for employing eight black models. It's interesting looking back at the 1969 Life magazine feature, which had Naomi Sims on its cover with the headline, Black Models Take Center Stage, and it had a centerfold with many, many black models declaring black is busting out all over. But it doesn't seem like that actually that ball kept rolling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even today, for example, it wasn't until 1992 that a black model, Veronica Webb, landed a contract with a major cosmetics company, Revlon. And even today, thinking about who our cover girls are, a lot of times they are white. I mean, you do have today more of the the celebrity faces, Halle Berry, Lupita Nyong'o, Queen Latifah, who are, you know, getting these cosmetic contracts. But it's still fewer and farther between. And then if we look at high fashion, though, and diversity on the catwalk today, because the inspiration for this podcast came from New York Fashion Week, the awareness of a need for diversity is there, but the action is still lacking. Yeah. So Jezebel wrote about this in terms of New York Fashion Week for fall, winter 2014. And they point out that uh, more than 78% of the models were white, although it is less common for designers to use all white casts. But even that doesn't really matter because they totally seem to be skating by on some token system. Well, we have one Asian girl and one black girl. That's fine, right? And this is something echoed by model Chanel Iman. She says, a few times I got excused by designers who told me, we already found one black girl. We don't need you anymore. And it's echoed by fellow model Jordan Dunn, who said, I'm normally told I'm canceled because I'm colored. So being canceled because of my boobs is a minor thing. 
Yeah. I mean, and, and you think that, oh, well, what does it matter? I mean, that's high-end fashion representation. It does matter because, again, the, today, modeling culture and what we consider beautiful and how these women are posed in advertisements and in fashion features, it does reflect what we think of as being worthy of aspiration and even of eroticizing. Mm-hmm. It is a cycle. Designers pick up on what they think is part of the zeitgeist what they think is hip and cool and the best representation for their clothes. And then we look to those images and say, okay, well, what's pretty? What's beautiful? Do I want to be a model? Do I look like them? And also, too, thinking about how they're posed, because even still, I mean, we're focusing more on like catwalk fashion. But if you look in fashion magazines, it is highly problematic that a lot of times women of color are still portrayed in in the way that Daniele Luna was described as an exotic species. They are often still exoticized rather than simply being models. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it really seems like if we're looking to the modeling industry to be our bellwether of women's empowerment, we're probably going to be waiting forever because the entire industry has been built on the outright literal objectification of women. Literal. Literal. Yeah. Mannequins. Mm-hmm. So, and, and this goes for men, too. We haven't talked about male modeling, except for Hector on the stage. <laughs> he had brilliant light. <laughs> but, I, I mean, it was, this was an eye-opener for me. I mean, it's it's easy to see that, that fashion has some problematic aspects as a layperson. But when you dig into the history, it, it, it gets pretty intense. Well, yeah, those problematic aspects are built into the foundation of modeling as we see it today. Yeah. So I really want to hear from listeners on this, especially if you are at all associated with the fashion industry or just interested in fashion in general. Sort of how do you reconcile all of these things and is it getting better? Let us know. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. a letter here from Mindy responding to our Not Your Average Period Panties episode with Julie Seigel. She writes, as an entrepreneur myself, just starting out, it was very inspiring. I loved hearing about how Julie got started and how she grew. I've come across many challenges myself, such as constantly being ignored by men at multiple small business development centers until my male cousin, who also works for an SBDC, would ask them to talk to my business partner and me. So it was helpful to hear how she was able to make her company work and focus not on being a female entrepreneur, but just an entrepreneur. My partner and I have been trying to do the same. That said, listening to Julie kept making me think of my sister. She did not start her own business technically, but she did start an amazing charity organization, all while maintaining a full-time job and taking care of her family. When one of her friends was diagnosed with terminal cancer, she wanted to find a way to help him and his family, especially since they had young children at home. He eventually lost his battle, but my sister took that loss and turned it into something amazing. She started an organization called Treasured Time, and their tagline is Giving the Gift of Moments. Anyway, I would love to hear about other ordinary women doing extraordinary things. I'm so proud of my sister and look up to her, and it would be amazing to hear about other such women out there as well. So thank you, Mindy. And if you have any suggestions of said ordinary women doing extraordinary things you think we should talk to, let us know. So I've got a letter here from our Gay Best Friends episode, which we have been hearing from a lot of listeners about, especially a lot of bisexual listeners, including Mark, who writes... 
I'm a bi guy with a mostly male friend group when I'm not at college. My high school was not an okay place to be out, so I pretty much stuck to a few guy friends as a typical straight guy, which was okay for me because I'm just lucky to be the mostly stereotypically straight as far as personality and interests. After graduating, I came out to them, and they were all supportive. Thank you, internet culture. So I have eight super close relationships with straight males. Honestly, though, anything involving my sexuality never comes up. I've only brought it up a couple of times, and it was pretty awkward. Not because they were uncomfortable, but because no one can relate, and no one has anything on which to comment, so the conversation kind of stops. My favorite response so far, and one of the reasons that my friends are awesome, was... Dude, getting some is getting some. This lack of relatability paradigm has been the defining factor of my experience in college. Now, as for a qualm that Mark had with our gay best friends podcast, he writes, I'm bi and it really irked me that you summed up the description of studies about non-straight males as gay males. No, it does not mean that. And the study probably explicitly used that term to avoid excluding the wide range of males who are neither gay nor straight. I definitely understand that being politically correct all the time is more limiting than beneficial, but please just be aware of non-mainstream sexualities being ignored and forgotten is a real issue. And so, yet again, podcast listeners, we have a request for an episode on bisexual erasure, so it looks like we're going to have to do it. Not that we wouldn't want to anyway, but we appreciate all of your suggestions, letting us know the things that we need to talk about and that are on your mind. So keep the ideas and stories coming. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with this one, if you want to learn more about the fascinating history of fashion modeling, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. And thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 